we begin reading in John chapter 12 and verse 37, he says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, I remember thinking when I was younger about my grandparents. On my dad's side, they were a couple that was very hardworking and uh, frugal. They didn't spend a lot of money that wasn't necessary to spend. Over the years, they accumulated a lot of money. I remember thinking later on, at this point they were retired and living comfortably, but in a solid, kind of a modest home living still a modest life. And I just remember thinking, why so modest? Because at this point, they had plenty of money. Everything for them was kind of down to a system. They bought a new car every 11 years. Grandma said it was like buying a loaf of bread. You just went down and you bought one and you brought it home. That way you didn't have to pay interest on any loans or anything like that. And and um, they just had everything kind of down to a science. And I remember thinking, okay, at what point can you just kind of let go of the science of that thing and just uh, splurge? But they didn't, because by the time you get to that point, you've had a whole lifetime of developing patterns. By that time, you just are, in your character and in your nature, a frugal person. And so the things that you maybe did out of necessity when you were younger has been built into a lifestyle. And so that when you get up older in your years, that is just who you are. And I remember thinking about the importance of patterns in life, because the things that we do on a regular basis end up as part of our character. We may start out kind of shaping our patterns, and pretty soon our patterns begin to shape us. And that can happen, the positive or the negative. My grandparents' patterns served them very well, and they were able to enjoy a comfortable life and then leave things that were important to them to their children after them. On the other hand, if you build negative patterns in your life, it can go very much the opposite direction. I know from time to time of talking, speaking with law enforcement that they end up typically tending to uh, kind of deal with the same people over and over and over again because these are people that have built some negative patterns in their life. So when something goes wrong in an area, you kind of have a pretty good idea and narrow down that list to probably who's involved. Why? Because of, again, patterns. Well, the reason I bring that up is because that's what we're looking at here this morning, is we're looking at some patterns. In fact, as we look in this passage, there's a pattern that Israel has had in their life since just about its inception. There's a pattern within the people that Jesus is dealing with in his day that was very similar to the pattern that was in place in the people of Isaiah's day, and that's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah. There's a pattern 
actually in the passage that, that mirrors God's bigger pattern that we see God replicate several times throughout history. And he states it clearly so uh, within the pages of the New Testament. And you see, here's the thing. Patterns, as I said, we start out kind of forming our patterns and pretty soon our patterns begin to form us. And that makes these things incredibly important. I was thinking as Del read the letter this morning from Chad about the young man that was at the Teens for Christ thing and other people are making a decision for Christ. And this young man says, you know what, I'm, I'm just not ready yet to trust Jesus. And on one hand, yes, okay, commend him for his honesty because at least that keeps the conversation rolling because there needs to be more conversation if he's not ready yet. But at the same time, that's kind of a dangerous place to be. Because the Bible tells us now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. The fact of the matter is, every time we make that decision, we're building pattern in our life. We say no to one thing consistently enough, and it becomes part of our life. It becomes a pattern. Just as much as saying yes to something builds pattern within our life. And so somebody in that position, if they're contemplating putting their faith in Christ and saying, nope, it's not for me, not today, maybe, maybe in the future, you know what? The next time it's going to be easier to say no again. And the time after that will be even easier to say no again. And you see you start to become entrenched. You kind of start to put yourself in a rut. Now, I'm not saying that there's no deathbed confessions or anything like that. Thanks to the grace of God, I think there are some here and there. But the fact of the matter is, is every once in a while I have somebody ask me a question. Is it possible? Will God still save you if you live how you want and then you get to the end of your life and then you put your faith in Christ? And the answer to that, if we look at the thief on the cross, is yes, God will if you come to a moment of repentance. But the answer also in Scripture is the chances of you coming to that point of repentance after continually saying no to God is very slim. Even Esau is used as an example of somebody who would, could not find repentance even though he sought it with tears. Even with that of the case, even if you did know your hour of death, let's say, and you said, you know what, I'm going to live out my life, I don't know that God's going to let you do that. You know, there is something that we're going to learn about here shortly as we look through this passage where God just says He kind of draws a line and at that point, you know what, the answer is no. And the point is, by that time, after conditioning your heart, building a pattern in your heart to reject God over years of your lifetime, I don't know that you'll be able to get out of that pattern at the moment that you absolutely need to believe. And the answer for that, again, from Scripture is, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. So my prayer for that youngster is that he recognizes the importance of what he's looking at and that he makes his decision very promptly. Patterns are of huge importance. But as we consider the importance of patterns here this morning, we're going to look at three characteristics kind of of unbelief and then three characteristics of belief. The first that we see is that unbelief is irrational. In John chapter 12 and verse 37, it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John has been calling these things signs through his whole gospel. The whole point of John's gospel is that Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and that by believing in Him, we can have life in His name. And to help us believe, John has shared with us about eight of his miracles. So at this point, we've seen Jesus exercising power over nature because He's done things like change water into wine. He's been able to walk on the water. He's taken one boy's lunch and served over 5,000 people. We see His power over health because He has healed people and has power even over death as He's raised Lazarus from the dead. 
We've seen his power over blindness. In fact, somebody that was born blind, which that had never been done before. If you dig into the other Gospels, you also see that he has power over the spiritual world in casting out demons. Through his signs, has shown himself to have power over every facet as it touches human life. And that proves that he is from God. Nicodemus got it early in his ministry. Way back in John chapter 3, remember when Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, most of the Sanhedrin rejects Christ. Nicodemus comes to him and he says, nobody can do the things that you're doing except he's from God. The proof is there. We've seen the response of the crowd. We have people saying, well, if this isn't the Christ, when the Christ does come, what else could he do beyond what this guy's done to prove who he is? And sometimes they're looking at him and saying, do the leaders... Do they really know that this guy's got to be the guy? There was ample proof and on display and in front of them all, but we also see the the corruption, the hard-heartedness of sin. How could he do all those things in front of these people and them still not believe? It's because they don't want to believe. They like seeing things the way they do. They don't want him to be in their life. They don't want him to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They don't want him to upset their apple cart. They were in charge, the Sanhedrin, and they liked calling the shots, and so they were leading the way to get rid of this guy. But you know what? I find that the same is true today. I've had lots of conversations with lots of different people that want to doubt, that want to doubt that Jesus is the Son of God and that all of this is true, that there is even a God. I think the motivation in every case is they don't really want a God. Because if you don't have a God, then you're God. You get to call the shots. You get to feel good about yourself because you're setting your own standard of rules. Even though I think it's kind of funny that everybody sets their own standard of rules. And if they're honest, they have to recognize that even if they set their own standard, they still break the rules. Which kind of points back to the fact that there's a God. But at any rate, most of the people that I've had conversations with about can you prove that Christ is the Son of God, they don't want to know that He's the Son of God. They like to doubt. They feel like they're justified to have doubt. You see, doubt, you know what doubt does? Doubt says, I'm not against God, but I just don't know about Him. And so they feel like there's some safety in that. Because why would God do anything to me? I'm not against Him. Well, yes, you are. They don't feel like they're actively against God. That way they can continue to live their life the way they want. And when they stand before God, they think they're going to say, Oh, okay, I guess you are real. Good. I'm, I'm ready to come in. And He's going to say, No, you're not. Because it's only through faith in Christ. The reason that I think that that's the motivation is because I love this subject. And so I've read lots of books on this subject. And it's a subject that's personal to me. Because I've had my doubts over the years. Say, is this for real? Is this really true? When I ask those questions, or have asked those questions, I go back and I say, well, is the stuff that we know about Jesus that we read here, is it, is it real? Is it true? I know that it's true. Well, how do I know that it's true? Well, it's because these 11 guys all said that they were there, that they saw Christ risen again from the dead. So if anybody made this up, it has to be these guys. But every one of them gave up a, a kind of a comfortable life for a tortured life, for a persecuted life. Why would they do that? And out of 11, 100% of them stuck to the story. And the story was simple. You killed him, and he rose again from the dead. Even though all they would have had to say is, okay, we made it up, and they would have got let go, and they would have been allowed to live. They could have said like Peter did earlier on before he saw the resurrected Christ, I'm going back to fishing. That's what they would have done if it wasn't true. And so I look at the, what happened with these guys and I say, okay, if, these, if it's made up, then these 11 guys are the one that made it up. They have to be. And there's no way they made it up because why would they lay down their lives for a lie? And you know, there's a whole, so many more things we could go through, but I don't think we need to. Christ can tell you ahead of time they're going to crucify me and then I'm going to raise myself from the dead on the third day. And then they kill him. 
and then he comes out of the grave on the third day, then uh, that does mean he's the Son of God. But here's, here's the thing. When I discuss this with people, and people say, you know what, I just don't know that I can believe all that stuff. I could see where I could believe it as a kid, but as an adult, I don't really know that I can believe that. When I start to share and lead them through the, the process of thinking these things out, all of a sudden they're not so interested in talking about it anymore. I've had people that I've bought books for. I said, here, give them a book on the subject. Simple one here. You read it. I'll read it. We'll talk about it. Never seem to get around to talking about it again. Why? Because they like to doubt. When you look at Jesus' life, why are they rejecting Christ? It's not based on some rational decision. In fact, it's very irrational. For these people to have all those miracles done right in front of them and then turn around and say, nope, he's not the guy. Uh, unbelief was irrational. Well, with all the scholarship that's out there and our understanding of what has took place within the Bible and looking at history, I'd say unbelief is still just as irrational today as it was then. There's a mountain of evidence and paths of logic that, that lead right to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because nobody could do the things that He did except He was exactly that. Well, not only do we see that unbelief is irrational, but unbelief is predicted. Jesus, as He's dealing with unbelief in Israel, this isn't the first time. This is kind of a pattern for Israel. Even before Israel, there was a pattern involved. Look, mankind grew deep into his corruption and God decided to flood the world. He saves a remnant. He saves Noah and his family, just eight people. And from that time on, we kind of see that same pattern within God's working in the human race that God does that. They go corrupt and He saves a, a remnant of people. Even among God's chosen people, we're going to see that there's a remnant of people that would be saved. And so... There's a pattern within God's working within humanity. There's a pattern within Israel of falling back into unbelief. That's exactly where he goes here in John chapter 12 and verse 38. He says, So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, he's going back and quoting in two different passages actually from Isaiah. The next verse that he quotes will be from Isaiah as well. One of them is from chapter 6 when he sees a vision of God in his temple. And the other one is right at the very beginning of Isaiah 53. That's this one. He says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, Isaiah's ministry to Israel, God comes to him and he says, I'm going to want you to go to the nation Israel and give them this message. And here's the thing. Nobody's going to listen to you. And that's exactly what Isaiah is bemoaning at this point. The arm of the Lord is reaching out. He's reaching out to Israel. But who's listening? Now, it's also interesting exactly where this comes in because of all the passages in the Old Testament, this is the clearest prophecy concerning Jesus Christ and Him going to the cross. But here's the thing. Right as He starts to that prophecy about the coming Messiah and what He was going to accomplish on our behalf, the very first thing He says to God is, who's listening? Nobody's listening. Nobody's believing the things that we're telling Him. Jesus looks at the people at His time and He says they're an extension of the people in Isaiah's time. And so when you look at it, because on one hand, some people would say, if the chosen people did not embrace Jesus to be the Messiah, then that must be evidence that He is really not the Messiah. Because if He really was the Messiah, wouldn't the chosen people embrace Him as the Messiah? No. <laughs> Actually, the opposite is true. When you look back at the Old Testament, Jesus would even tell them at one time, look, which of the prophets didn't you, did your forefathers not kill? Israel was in a habit of rejecting the very people that God sent to them as prophets. And so actually, when you see Israel rejecting Christ as a nation, rejecting Christ, 
that is actually pretty strong evidence that this could very well be the guy. Because they have a whole history, they have a whole pattern of rejecting the messengers of God. But then also we see within this passage, it gets stronger as we get to verse 39 and 40. We see that unbelief can be judicial. Now, I would say that at some point in everybody's life, it does become judicial, I would say, at some point. But if we look at verses 39 and 40, it says, Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God judged Israel, and what He gave them when He judged them was what they persisted in already. And so you notice in verse 37, it says they would not believe. And so verse 39 says they now cannot believe. It's kind of like the same thing we see in Matthew chapter 13. When some of the religious leaders looked at the miracles that Jesus did, and it was time for them to make a decision, well, is He the Son of God or not? They were like, well, these miracles are amazing, so it has to be from something powerful. But we don't want Him to be the Son of God, so it can't be that. And so they went with the only kind of the other option, which is Jesus is doing these miracles by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that's not forgivable. And then he begins to speak to him in parables. And the disciples said, hey, wait a minute, you've spoke clearly to us before. Now it's just in parables. It's in these stories. Why are you doing that? He says, because it's for you to hear, and you will in the stories, but it's not for them anymore. They had crossed a line. Their unbelief had become a judicial unbelief, where God says, all right, no more. That door's shut for you. Now, Where does that happen in any individual's life? I don't know. That's only for God to say. But that's why it's a scary thing to say, you know what, I'm not going to trust in Jesus now. Maybe I will later. Uh, Maybe you won't. Maybe your point of that judicial unbelief, that line that God puts for somebody to cross, maybe you just crossed it. And so these things are not things to be taken lightly. Now they cannot believe because He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Where they could have believed, now they cannot believe. In Matthew chapter 10, it says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This particular verse actually makes me curious, right? Because it says that of the Sanhedrin, some of them did believe in Christ, but they would not confess it. Well, the Bible tells us with the mouth our confession is made unto salvation. And you also have this passage where Jesus says, look, if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father. So it looks like they're not saved. And so you kind of wonder, but at the same time in this passage, it looks like they're showing that uh, even though the whole Sanhedrin had rejected Christ as a whole, that there is even a remnant within the Sanhedrin that is believing in Christ. And so I kind of tend to drift toward this, that some of those who would not speak out about it, who love the glory of men rather than the glory of God, would eventually speak out about it. And the reason that I think that is because we know that Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin, and he definitely came to Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, also of the Sanhedrin, who also came to Christ. I'm tempted to, to kind of lean toward that they were probably legitimately believers, but they would strengthen and confess it before men. In time, that's where I think it lands, but I can't say for sure. But at any rate, he's telling them, look, you did not believe, and so now you cannot believe. Second Thessalonians, we see a similar kind of thing. This one's looking forward to the end times. And it says the coming of the lawless one, that would be the Antichrist that comes in the last days, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So he's going to try to replicate what Jesus did through his signs and wonders. 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. At some point, God has a line drawn and at that point He's going to send a delusion and they'll believe a lie. They will follow the Antichrist instead of the real Christ. Why? Because they did not love God and they did not submit to Christ and God drew a line crossing which there's no going back. Leon Morris would say this. He says, When John quotes, he hath blinded their eyes. He does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men choose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. The reason for now you can't see anymore is because they refused to see. This is the path they chose. And finally God says, okay, you can have that path. Now you cannot get off that path. D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. You know, probably the best illustration for it, it's used as an illustration in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And if you look back at Exodus, you see it in Pharaoh. Ten different times it's going to say that God hardened Pharaoh. And ten different times it's going to say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so what you see is you see an obstinate, hard-hearted person who repeatedly hardens his heart before God makes a pattern of it in his life and God also hardening Pharaoh and there's a point of no return. Romans has a, a lot to deal with this because in chapter 1 it begins talking about the, the Gentile peoples and he says what do we see when we look at the Gentiles in their relationship to God or gods? And we see paganism. We see them worshiping different gods and we see that that has a negative impact in their life as far as their morality and those things go as well. Romans chapter 1 verse, beginning of verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that the truth wasn't available or evident, but they took it and they suppressed it. Just like Jesus' signs were evident in front of the people, but they suppressed those things. They refused to believe those things. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. In other words, he says, God says, look, if you want to know if I exist, just look at the world around you. Even look within you and you'll find evidence of it. I saw a thing on Facebook recently that I thought was really kind of hilarious. I, know, I can't remember word for word what it said, but it was a picture of two snowmen and one of them saying, no, no, we weren't created. We just rolled up here. You know? <laughs> and I thought, I thought, you know, that says it all. Because if you can look at something as simplistic, some simple, three snowballs stacked on each other and a hat and a carrot, a couple of rocks, everybody that looks at a snowman knows there's a snowman maker somewhere. Did you know within inside every cell of your body there's more than a library of information? Talk about the complexity of yourself. And, oh yeah, that's just, that's just an accident. Well, he goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They're developing a pattern. You see what it's talking? They suppressed the truth. They went on in that suppression. A pattern. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This was what mankind does in his wisdom apart from God. 
word of purpose, therefore, in other words, because of all the things you just read about them suppressing the truth, growing in their darkness, exchanging, therefore God gave them up. He's going to say that three times in this passage. God gave them up. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus is talking about with the Jewish people that happened to the Gentile people. The Gentile people said, no, we can see God. We don't want him. We don't want that. We're going to worship these statues. We're going to worship these idols. We're going to get involved in these other things. We're going to do what we want. We're going to see things the way we want to see them. And God says, okay, you can have that. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. They keep trading it in. That's rebellion against God. You take things the way that He made them and you exchange them for something else. You suppress the truth. You change the glory of God into idolatry. And they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange. There's that exchange again. They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so we see this principle that God draws a line and they suppress the truth and they exchange the glory of God for idols. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They exchange the nature that God created in in the relationship between men and women and they exchange that for something perverted and God gives them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Then he moves on to talk to the Jewish people and he says, you guys have the law, but you don't follow it. And so at the end of looking at both the Gentiles and the Jewish people, God says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then when we get to chapter 9 of the book of Romans, he's going to deal extensively with Israel. And he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. But God says He's left a remnant. What the point is, is another pattern that we see in God that is evidenced in John chapter 12. The pattern is this, that Israel... And the Gentile people also. The pattern is that these people reject God. God's arms are extended to them and they reject Him, they reject Him, they reject Him. They don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe. And so God gives them over to their unbelief. He gave the Gentiles over to their paganism. He's given the Jewish people over to their unbelief. But then He always saves a remnant. Elijah will be before God and say, God, everybody's forsaken you. I'm the only one left. And God will tell Elijah... I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. I have a remnant. And even within this passage in John chapter 12 here, we see a remnant because the whole Sanhedrin, the whole Jewish ruling council is, is bent on crucifying Christ. But there's a remnant of people within that council even that have believed. God even today among the Jews has His remnant. So <clears throat> let me just point out quickly what Jesus points out about belief. First of all, belief is inclusive. Jesus says, look, if you get me, you get the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. 
If you listen to me, you listen to the Father. You believe in me, you're believing in the Father. When you're putting your faith in Jesus, this isn't a choice other than God. This is the choice for God. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. The belief is also exclusive. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Christ is the only way. He is exclusive. And then lastly, belief is effective. Because Jesus would point this out in verse 46. He says, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, belief is effective because when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we come from the darkness to the light. Also, in the very last verse, he says, And I know that his commandment is eternal life. It's through this belief that we can have eternal life. Belief is effective. And so it's important what kind of patterns we set in our life. Patterns of unbelief, why would we do that? It's irrational. It's predictable. And the really scary part is when it becomes judicial. God says, nope, you've crossed the line. There's no going back. Belief is the pattern we want to get into. Why? Because it's inclusive. You put your faith in Christ, you get the Father. And belief is exclusive. There is no other way. We go through Christ to the Father or we don't go at all. But thankfully, belief is very effective. It changes our life. It brings us from that darkness to light and gives us that eternal life.